Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Stacey Abrams, who's running to be the next governor of Georgia. We also have Arnie Duncan, the former Secretary of Education, and one of his partners in his new venture, Curtis, to join us to talk about the work that's happening in Chicago. Now, before we jump in, a couple things. One is that there's so much happening in the world that I know it can feel overwhelming, that people feel like they individually can't make a difference. But one of the ways that sort of oppression works is that it tries to convince you that you don't have power. And I've been in a lot of spaces. And people use this language of empowerment, like I'm going to empower you and I'm going to empower that person, empower these group of people. And what I remind myself of all the time is that like, you can't give people power. Like, that's just not how this works. What you can do as an organizer, as an activist, is like help people remember the power that they already have. And you can help them unlock that power. And this, again, is talking about sort of interpersonally and in the context of systems. But when we think about empowering other people, it's about helping them tap into the gift and the power that they have. Like, that is what organizers do. That is what activists do. And we're always fighting to make sure structures and systems like recognize the power that people should have over their lives at the structural level and give that to them. And that is what we think about when we think about empowerment. So let this week be one where you remember to empower people, where you empower yourself and understand the power and agency that you have in this work. Now, let's get to it. And now the news with me, Clint. The resident academic, Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and Sam, your favorite data scientist. Here we go. Hey, friends. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett, um, Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith, Clint Smith III, Clint Smith III on all social media. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, and this is this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Also, very important announcement. The day we're recording this, Monday, September 4th, is a national holiday. It is Beyonce's birthday, and I want to wish her a very special day. I can feel the the Bay Hive just, like, buzzing around me. People (laughs) out in the streets. Bees are are resurrecting from the dead. (laughs) As this airs, um, it is highly likely that you have already heard or will be hearing an announcement coming from the White House as to... Uh, Trump's decision on what to do with the DACA program. Um, DACA, of course, stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The young people that are eligible for arrived before their 16th birthday in the United States with um, uh, with their parents or another family member. Um, and there are several requirements that they have to meet in order to qualify for DACA, um, but DACA allows them to not be deported while they are pursuing their full citizenship um, and are continuing to meet those requirements. Uh, 
you know, there are um, a lot of ways that this could go. Um, Politico leaked over the weekend that Trump may decide to end the program, but to do so on a six-month delay, um, essentially giving Congress a window to act um, and, and to find a different solution. Um, there have also been previous reports that DACA will actually just be used as a pawn and that ultimately DACA might be saved, but he would use it to f- get funding for this wall that you know, people with good sense and hearts don't want built. I also heard somebody say on my timeline that Black people shouldn't support DACA, which was a particularly scary uh, response to me. Um, essentially, this this um, fear-based myth that, um, that, you know, all the, I mean, to have him say it, all the Mexicans came and stole our jobs. I was really disappointed to see that because the way that oppression works so often is that it leaves those of us on the margins to fight over scraps while everyone else is feasting um, in their privilege in another room. There are people from all over the world who are eligible through DACA, who immigrate to this country, who um, come under DACA. Um, And at the end of the day, there has to be a conversation about solidarity and how we show up for one another uh, in order to actually do what we can do as the global majority, which people of color are. Uh, but it's, it is also a reminder that any kind of the fear-based myths about immigrants and really about people of color and Latinx folks in particular um, are, are diminished or um, totally wiped out with the truth about DACA. So when we hear things about voter fraud, um, actually 89% of DACA recipients um, go out and get their driver's license or state ID. Um, people who are supposedly afraid of some kind of growing welfare state, 97% of DACA recipients are employed. Um, or in school, 45% of documented folks are actually employed and in school. So, um, you know, I believe that migration is a factor of liberty and it truly is a right. People need to be able to move around and do so safely. Um, But even for folks who want to have an argument about productivity or contribution, DACA flies in the face of those as well. So I hope to see that the program Um, The program continued, given all of the students who will lose out, all of the teachers who will lose out, and the 800,000 people who will suddenly be pushed back into the shadows. It's been really fascinating to watch the evolution of the Dreamer movement, I think. And this speaks to, and we might have spoken about this before on the podcast, um, because it ties into a sort of larger theme around protest and movement building and, and how social change does or should happen, that that's really interesting and really, you know, important to grapple with because, you know, when, when dreamers were first sort of uh, coming out of the shadows as, as the sort of nomenclature goes um, and showing and coming out, uh, especially during sort of 2011, 2012, when this was going through um, Congress, when the a possible dream act was going through Congress, it was actually passed in the house and then failed by a few votes in the Senate. But in the, sort of lead up to that and then following that a lot of the the images you would see in the sort of um rhetoric in in the media was about you know it was all of these these young people and they would put on you know graduation caps and graduation robes or you would read a story in the New York Times about uh you know a young person who graduated from Yale and then uh you know was deported or uh you know someone who was the valedictorian of their class and then couldn't get into a certain school because they didn't have a social security number. And I think that those stories are helpful and they are illuminative and they certainly demonstrate the loss of uh, social and intellectual capital that 
our country loses out on when uh, we put like a literal policy ceiling on what um, young people who who came here, you know, because their parents brought them here are able to achieve. I also, it's interesting because as that movement evolved, part of what you saw is that if you're predicating the idea uh, that one should be able to stay in the United States based off of and predicated upon that you are like this incredible top 10 student or that you are going to Yale or Harvard or that you will never make a mistake in your life and you are just an incredible student who like does community service and gets all A's like that's there's certainly people like that but that is not the majority of dreamers and that is not the majority of people like of any demographic roberto gonzalez i think i've recommended his book on this podcast before but roberto gonzalez is a professor at harvard and he's uh, written an incredible book he's the leading expert on um the the dream young dreamers and and his book is called lives in limbo i'd really pick that up but part of what he finds is that uh again the biggest success stories of of daca are these moderate achievers and people you know 40 percent of undocumented students were like failing to complete high school and DACA is like transforming that. So I think this is also, you know, sort of an example, another example of, um, you know, this administration just, you know, almost on the fly, you know, this came out, it didn't seem to be prompted by anything. They just sort of announced that all of a sudden uh, Trump was considering ending DACA. Um, and, you know, with that announcement, it, 800,000 people now feel unsafe, you know, and it's the power of the presidency and the the threat that really, you know, when that position is being used um, in the context of a white supremacist agenda, you are seeing, you know, people of color that are feeling unsafe now in this country. Uh, as a result, 800,000 people um, who now have to f- potentially fear deportation to a country that they've never known and, uh, you know, don't remember. You know, I'm reminded that the government has information on all of the DACA, uh, the people enrolled in DACA, because to enroll in DACA, they, you know, had to enroll. And it would be awful for ICE to just like show up at the, show up at people's houses and, and, and arrest them. Um, I'm hopeful that ICE uh, isn't involved, that like DACA doesn't end, that this is just sort of a bad news cycle. Uh, People should continue to press their uh, state and local lawmakers to make sure that their city is a sanctuary city. And then at the federal level uh, to make sure that their representatives are doing everything they can to keep DACA. It would be great for, for this to actually be legislation and not be through an executive order so that he uh, can't do any more harm. So my piece of news uh, is a recent decision from the Florida Supreme Court, which um, declined to return 29 death penalty uh, cases that uh, Governor Rick Scott of Florida took away from um, State Attorney Aramis Ayala in Central Florida. And so the backstory of this is um, Aramis Ayala is the first Uh, black state attorney in Florida, in Florida's history. And so to give you some context about that, um, there are 20 state attorneys at any given time in Florida. Uh, These are elected positions. In the 170 or some odd years of Florida history, you think about every four years, they're electing 20 um, state attorneys. And for the first time ever, um, a black state attorney was elected. Um, Aramis Ayala decided upon being elected that she would not seek the death penalty um, for, for anyone, uh, citing, uh, a, a 
rich literature uh, and and research that suggests that uh, people who are convicted um, and sentenced to death oftentimes end up being innocent. Um, and it is a racially disproportionate group of people. So uh, a black defendant is three times more likely uh, to have a jury recommend the death penalty than a white defendant in a similar case. Uh, and so she said that the state shouldn't be killing people essentially. And, um, and because of that decision, the governor of Florida, um, Rick Scott, a Republican governor, decided to transfer all death penalty cases away from her uh, to an Ocala, uh, uh, Ocala state attorney um, so that these people could be sentenced to death, 29 people. Um, and so that case has gone to court and the Supreme Court upheld the governor's uh, ability to do that. So now those 29 cases are actually um, still eligible to be uh, to have the death penalty. And so, you know, I bring this because oftentimes we talk about institutional racism and white supremacy. Uh, and what we see here is that, you know, for the first time ever, we have a, a black state attorney in Florida uh, who is taking a different course and deciding not to implement a racist uh, practice, which is seeking the death penalty. Uh, and yet, you know, the courts and the governor have overruled her um, to reimpose this practice uh, and to which which will have the effect of actually impacting t at least 29 lives so far, um, which are now uh, eligible for the death penalty that otherwise would not be. I think the question for me is who who is making money off of this? And is that is that a part of the conversation that we're not having? I know that the death penalty is extraordinarily expensive, um, but as with all. Um, aspects of the prison industrial complex, uh, especially thus far, uh, every time we lift up a rock, there's somebody making money hand over fist up under there. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question, but it is the question that comes to mind um, because I'm struggling with why else, besides the reason you've listed, Sam, why else um, someone would take such great care to make sure that um, that Florida gets the chance to keep killing people. Probably the best study that's been done on this in 2014 from the National Academy of Sciences showed that 4%, 4.1% to be specific, of people who are killed uh, are innocent. Which, you know, when you hear the number at first, you're like, oh, 4%, that's a low number. But that's one out of 25 cases. And so it is... I mean, it, I think it's just important to like really step back and understand that like one out of every 25 people who are put to death in this country, according to the study, are innocent. And that is, I mean, that in and of itself, if that number was one in 100 or one in 500, we should still need like fundamentally reconsider the death penalty as as an institution, again, for a myriad of other reasons, but but like really sit down and think about one in 25 people who are innocent of the crime they have been convicted of being put to death. Uh, that is so unsettling to me. I can't even really begin to put it into words. What's fascinating is like places like Florida is that you see across the country, uh, the right touting political office and that people in office should be able to make the decisions that they think is best. And then you get this black woman prosecutor in who is making a decision that she thinks is the most equitable and just and not sentencing people to death. 
I mean, suddenly, like, she shouldn't have power, and suddenly there should be all these different rules, and people didn't even know he could strip her power away in this way. What is interesting is that recently she has said, as of uh, September 1st, that she will seek the death penalty in cases where a panel of seven people of assistant state's attorneys in her office, if they unanimously suggest or say that she should seek the death penalty, then she will seek it. So what she's done in the compromise is like build a layer where there's additional scrutiny put in, put on the cases. So not just the attorney assigned to it, but a panel of attorneys in her office have to review the case. And if they unanimously say that, uh, that she should seek the death penalty, then she'll go for it. But it is this fascination of like, why is it important to kill people? Locking them up forever is already bad enough. But what what does it mean when we need uh, to kill people in order to show that there's justice? And I think she's calling that into question in a way that we should call into question more broadly. I, I live in Baltimore and in Maryland, we've had the moratorium on the death penalty for a long time. And that should be the case in many other places. Alaska apparently does not have life without parole. Um so, you know, it certainly can be done. Uh, obviously, there are many countries that don't have that don't have this practice of locking people up for the rest of their days or imposing the death penalty. And, and there are some states that do as well. And so, you know, we need to be looking towards uh, those models and implementing them in uh, as many places as possible so that uh, we can end this uh, racist and cruel practice uh, in this country. So my piece of news is just a, a short little op-ed that was written in the New York Times over the weekend uh, by several Christian clergy members and pastors. Uh, and the title of the piece is Waiting for the Perfect Protests. And And I just thought that it was important for, for folks in the Christian community um, and who are members of clergy themselves and sort of at the heads of, of these institutions and organized uh, religions to to put themselves out and and talk about the uh, the mythology of what protests should or shouldn't look like. And I think, you know, in the aftermath of Charlottesville and um, a lot of the the sort of rallies that have been happening since then, there's been this sort of false equivalency uh, that has been paraded about, first off, by our commander in chief, but also by a, a myriad of, of pundits and, and other folks on social media uh, that that creates a sort of false equivalency between white supremacists and neo-Nazis and, and sort of neo-fascists and those who are opposing them and those who are like, who are coming to uh, challenge those ideas and the sort of like public parading and demonstration of those ideas. And, and I think it it is important that, you know, we can not agree with the methods that people use in order to make a point that we might otherwise agree with. And I think that's healthy and I think that's fine. And I think that, again, you can look throughout history and you can look to, I mean, you can look to a few years ago, right? And you can look to now people in the the movement for black lives, people have many different conceptions of what change should look like, even though many people have the same sort of place they want to get generally. Um, but but I, I, I thought this piece was great because it it challenges specifically white folks or or folks who are not, uh, personally uh, indicted uh, or, or whose safety is not threatened, um, whose well-being is not threatened by the nature of the wide range of things that are happening in our in our country and in our world right now. And it's kind of like you can't sit back and say like, oh, well, I, I don't like 100% of how these people do this, so I'm not going to say anything or I'm going to say 
you know, the Klan is bad, but also those counter protesters were bad too. Like, no, that's not, you know, that, that is, it is important to not fall into the trap of, uh, of falsely equating, uh, different notions of, of protest. Um, and, and I just want to read part, part of what they do is they allude to, um, Dr. King's 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. And I just wanted to read a section of it uh, to finish this part off because I think it is, you know, over, what, 50 years old at this point, but is it, it could have been written, uh, you know, a week ago. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klaner but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. I've said before that the letter from a Birmingham jail was the piece of, of history and literature, the single piece of history and literature that most sustained me um, in 2014, especially, but throughout this movement, um, because of, because of responses like that, because of the kind of language that it gives us about creating a crisis that forces governments and policymakers and the powerful to answer. Otherwise, they would never sit down to negotiate. Um, it is, I'm often reminded that he's not only answering to white clergy, but that there was actually a black clergy in that group of ministers that uh, Dr. King's responding to directly, right? They actually sent him a letter literally saying stop um, and and wait your turn and, and slow down. Um, and so I'm reminded that white supremacy can use anybody um, and that uh, the, the cries for acceptable protest are not new. I would encourage everybody to go read the entire letter, quite frankly, because um, there's a lot in there that I think can be instructive for all of us and that can give you language to use with other folks when they've got questions about why we have to press forward in this way and not just pursue different policy, but also pursue this in the streets uh, with protests. Boom. Um, my news is about Houston. And in Houston, so obviously we all know that there, Hurricane Harvey has uh, ravaged the city in so many ways and that there's been an outpouring of um, people going to the city, trying to help with the recovery. We know that it is not only about helping right now, but there will be a long-term help that will be necessary, as we've seen in other cities that have been ravaged by natural disasters like New Orleans. And the news is about the Houston uh, public schools. So it is the Houston Independent School District is the largest school district in Texas, has about 215,000 students. And what they have reported is that 22 of the 245 schools have extensive damage that'll keep them closed for months. And 53 of the schools have major damage and about 200 schools still have some form of standing water. And some of the schools will have to rip out uh, the walls. They'll have to remove the drywall and up in the floors. Um, and they will have to do a major reshuffling of kids to make sure that schools uh, actually open. And the district's reporting that about 115 schools will have to be deep cleaned before school is supposed to start on September 11th. They've not yet announced whether school is going to be postponed or not, but there's a lot of cleanup 
to do. And as somebody who's been a in the cabinet of a school system uh, before, I can only imagine how much work those uh, leaders in the Houston Independent School District are putting in to try and make sure that schools open for kids so that there's some sense of normalcy. But I bring this up just to remind us all that the work is important now while it's in the news, but it, uh, Houston won't be in the news in three months or four months. That's just how the news cycle goes, but the work will still remain. And there will, we will need to invest and make sure that like kids have everything they need and the communities have everything they need. And, and the larger message here is that uh, there's always work to do, even when it's not uh, something that you see every day. And I'm reminded of that when I think about Houston. Yeah, this is uh, this is something that definitely feels very personal to me. So uh, I'm from New Orleans. I was born and raised there. And Hurricane Katrina was my senior year of high school. So this week has been the past week or so uh, watching everything that's been happening in in Harvey and in Houston. And I actually, I evacuated to Houston um, and, and live with my aunt and uncle where I finished high school. And so uh, it's you, there are people who evacuated from New Orleans 12 years ago to Houston and after their homes were destroyed and then now uh, their homes were destroyed again um, in Houston. And so my, my thoughts are with them and with so many who, uh, who, because of, of these natural disasters and, and the increasing intensity of them as a result of climate change, who um, have been forced to, to move their lives somewhere else. And then now are being forced to, to move again in a way that, that is, I can't even begin to, Imagine. Yeah, in the spirit of being brief, I think y'all said everything that needs to be said. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now, my conversation with Stacey Abrams, candidate to be the next governor of Georgia. Stacey, thank you so much for joining today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. Now, we met at some event a while ago, but we met because you are a member of the Democratic Party and you've been organizing for a long time. And you're on the podcast today, though, because you are running to be the next governor of Georgia. I am indeed. And I'm excited to talk to you and to talk to your listeners about what I think can be a transformative opportunity for our country, and now, certainly for the state of Georgia. Happy to have you here. I'd love for you to talk about uh, what have you been doing and what led you to get to the point where you think that being the next governor of Georgia is the opportunity for you to make the biggest impact. I grew up the daughter of two working class parents. Uh, we went back and forth between working class and working poor. But my parents never let us believe that our situation meant less or more than anyone else's. They taught us that we were obligated to serve, that no matter how little we had, there was someone with less, and it was our job to serve that person. So for me, that meant going into service as a legislator, going into service by setting up the New Georgia Project to register voters, and now going into service as the next governor of Georgia because our citizens and our people need leadership that looks like them, that sounds like what they they need to see and hear uh, to move forward in this country. You were in the state house for a while. What what did you learn by being in the state house, and what was it like to be a black woman in an elected office in Georgia? I was elected in two thousand six. So when I came in, it was after Democrats had lost power in the House and the Senate and the and the governor's mansion. It was hard. Uh, to come into a space where you knew no matter what you did, you were unlikely to win. And to be an African-American woman in that space was even harder uh, because women were not always going to be given the same courtesy and the same access to power. Uh, I decided I would would find it and was very gratified to be able to work with my colleagues and move my way up and become minority leader four years later. And what were some of the things that you, when you look back on your time in the in the Georgia General Assembly, uh, what are you proud of? If you had stayed longer, what would you have worked on? How do you reflect on that on that period? When I became minority leader, or even before then, I made tax policy my core issue uh, because people of color, women, the poor tend not to understand how taxes work. But where you get your money often dictates how you spend your money. And so I've been privileged to really be the voice on progressive tax policy and fighting terrible tax policy at the Capitol. Uh, I helped beat the fair tax in the state of Georgia. I stopped the Republicans from increasing 
taxes on 82% of the citizens to give wealthy people a $150 million tax cut. Uh, but I'm also deeply proud of the work I did on kinship care. These are grandparents and others raising children who are not their own, but who understands these children do not belong in the foster care system. And I've been able to secure funding, uh, change the laws, and make a lot of progress on how they're treated. And then I would say the last thing is, as a minority leader, my job has been to facilitate helping my members get things done, but also working with Republicans to get things done. So getting money for transit for the first time in the history of Georgia from the state, uh, being able to extend support to military families, and fighting back voter suppression when they were doing things they really shouldn't. And so I, I, I look at my time in the legislature as an incredible training ground, and I'm very proud to have been there. Now, you were the first African-American leader of the party in Georgia and the first woman you also write novels on the side and you were deputy <laughs> city attorney all before 30 or deputy, you were the deputy city attorney before 30. What, why, why is politics a space that you have found as your own? I live in a community and in a state and in a region where too many people are being left out and left behind. I began my work as a tax attorney uh, and then be, went on what my mother calls my trajectory of downward economic mobility. So I left being a tax Wait, why attorney. Why are you a tax attorney? Like what? I don't know anybody who's <laughs> like, I want to be a tax attorney. No shade Honestly? to the tax attorneys out there. Somebody has to know taxes better than we do. Well, that's exactly it. I was, I was at uh, law school. I went to Yale Law School. And a friend of mine asked me to help some people he knew who had a nonprofit. I went to help and realized I didn't know any more than they did. But it looked like their issue was tax-related, and I found a professor who was so excited to have someone care about tax policy. He took me under his wing, gave me a bunch of books to read, and I fell in love. Okay. Well, you are by far the only person I've ever met <laughs> who's like, wow, tax, uh, tax. I do know I, there's somebody else on the pod who was a policy person who was, a, who was really fascinated by taxes. Your enthusiasm for tax law, though, is new to me. <laughs> Um, what would you say are the, wait, why governor? You could run for a lot of things, right? You could be a, you could continue to be in the the state house. You could run to be a mayor somewhere. You could run to be on the school board somewhere. You could run at the national level with the party. Like there are a host of things that you could continue to do and you, you've already done so much. Why governor? I am offended by poverty. I think it is immoral and it's economically inefficient. And if you look at trying to address poverty on the national level, federal policy is too diffuse and it's cumbersome. If you look at it on the mayoral or county level, it's too granular and it's difficult to amass the resources. Where we forget power lies is in the governor's mansion. The governor's office leads the conversation, especially in Georgia, about where revenue comes from and how it's spent, which cities get what they need, and they're the intercessor between the federal government and local governments. But on a more specific level for me, I want children to be bold and ambitious and educated. I want families to be able to live where they want and have jobs where they are that pay them a living wage. And I want an engaged citizenry that owns their government and doesn't wait for somebody to tell them what they can do and what they can have. The governor of a state makes those decisions. And unfortunately, the Republicans figured that out a long time ago, which is why they hold so many governor's mansions. 
and the terrible policies we see, you know, the, the occupant of the White House notwithstanding, those policies become law because a governor signs them or because a governor stops them. That's the job that I want because the issues I want to address, helping our families, making sure that everyone has an opportunity to thrive and not to survive, that has to come from a governor who understands it but wants more for her people. Now, you're running to be the governor of Georgia, which ha- which has had a Republican governor for quite a while, right? Uh, since 2002. Okay. Now, is um, I am not necessarily asking you this because <laughs> I remember running for mayor and people asked me this and it drove me bonkers, but people have asked you, uh, is this a symbolic run or are you actually running to win? Especially in a context where it seems like Georgia is pretty Republican. So two things. One, I'm running to win and I'm going to win uh, because Georgia is not the Georgia people remember from Gone with the Wind. And it's not the Georgia we had in 2002. Georgia today is 53% white, non-Hispanic, 47% people of color. Wow. Democrats lose elections by 200,000 votes in a state of 10.5 million people with about 6 million registered voters. Our issue is not an issue of capacity as Democrats. Our issue is an issue of mission and message. We have to want to win, and we have to want to win as Democrats, not as Republican light, and not as people who only talk to folks who've told us repeatedly they do not want to vote for us. I'm running a campaign that is optimistic, that is inclusive, but that is intentionally talking to that community of color that we have long ignored in our politics. The reason we can win is not only the demography, but it's also the profile of the state. Uh, This is a state that had more than a million and a half people move in between 2000 and 2010. These are people who came educated and came with resources. And what they want is a governor who can see the future and bring them along for the ride and be a part of our mission and delivering opportunity. I can win. uh, And I've seen us get close. The last thing I'll tell you is, you know, when we lost in 2002, that was the first time Republicans won. When we lost in 2006, Republicans were in charge. They beat us by 400,000 votes. Within two electoral cycles on the gubernatorial side, we went from 400,000 to 257 and from 257 down to 197. Hmm. That's without changing our strategy at all. If we change our strategy and actually invest in our people from the beginning of the campaign all the way through the end, And we don't wait until the last 30 days to go and find all the communities of color. And we don't run an air war without remembering that you've got to run a ground game first. Then we can win this election and we will take the state back. Now, what are the issues? If you had to say, like, top three issues in Georgia, what are the what are the things that are the most important for the next governor to tackle? First and foremost is education, Uh, and every governor will tell you that, as you know, someone who has been steeped in education, you cannot create paths to prosperity for your children, for your families without a solid education system. Uh, We talk about it as educating bold and ambitious children. Uh, For me, it's, you know, it's a conversation of going from cradle to career. Let's talk about high-quality daycare, expanded pre-K, excellent K-12 education, free technical college, and affordable higher ed. Number two, we have to build a thriving and diverse economy in every county. Georgia has 159 counties. 
we have to make sure you can get a job no matter where you live, and you don't have to have three of them to survive. Hmm. And that means investing our economic development dollars, not stealing jobs from other states, but building and growing jobs where we are. And then the third is that we have to fix government so it works for everyone by engaging and empowering our citizens. That means defending voter rights, protecting the LGBT community. It's about taking down Confederate monuments that are obscenity. Uh, But it's also about the fundamentals of just making sure people who want to access their government get what they deserve and, and get what they need. So, Stacey, what about the Confederate monuments? There are some there are some left in Georgia. How are we going to get them out of here? So I, I think that Georgia has to have the conversation. In fact, we have to unequivocally decide to take down these monuments. In this day and age, uh, having these memorials to bigotry and racism and domestic terrorism, that's just untenable. And specifically, Georgia has to grapple with the single largest bas-relief carving in America uh, of the three general Confederate generals on Stone Mountain. I've called for the removal of the Stone Mountain carving. And I believe that if we are going to be the nation we say we are, if we are going to create uh, Georgia as an exciting and optimistic place where all of us belong, where we are all treated equally, we have to address these physical monuments to bigotry. And uh, we have to honor our people, not honor this false past uh, of racism. You have served as a legislator and you've been a city attorney. Um, what qualifies you to be the next executive of the state of Georgia? I've run a small business. I have made payrolls. I have created jobs. As minority leader, I've had to not only raise money, but I actually have to run a small business. We hire staff. We have to make payroll every two weeks. Um, I know how government works and I know how business works. I know how to sign both the front of a paycheck as well as the back of one. Uh, And so I come to the table having the experience in the nonprofit sector. I've run a nonprofit that's registered 200,000 people of color in the last two years. Wow. I've run um, a business, several businesses actually, some successful, some not. So I know what works and I know what doesn't work. And I have led in the political space. I was the first woman to lead either party in the history of the General Assembly, the first African-American in the House. And uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution once gave me one of the highest compliments I've ever gotten from them. It's a backhanded compliment, but they called me strangely relevant. <laughs> and so, you know, to be governor, it's, it's about being an executive, but it's also about knowing how to navigate in the, the space of, of business. It's about knowing how to talk to the legislators and negotiate. But it's also about knowing how to engage the nonprofit space to reach those places where government and where business fails. And I know how to do those things because I've done those things. And where can people go to find more about the campaign? They can find out more about my campaign at stacyabrams.com, S-T-A-C-E-Y-A-B-R-A-M-S.com. Cool. And where can they uh, follow you? If they can follow me on, I make it very easy to find me. So I'm on Twitter at at Stacey Abrams. I am on Facebook at Stacey Abrams. I am on Instagram at Stacey Abrams. Uh, and in each, each of those places, we ask you to tell me what you think and to help us build our vision, because this is a people-powered campaign. Uh, if I'm elected, I will be the first black woman in the history of America to become the executive of a state. Well, thank you, Stacey, for joining us today on Pod Save the People, and I hope that we will talk to you again before Election Day. Thank you so much, Dre. This has been delightful, and I hope I've convinced you that taxes are fun. <laughs> 
Um, tax law. Let's be clear. Tax law. <laughs> tax law. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now, here's my conversation with former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan and his partner Curtis, and they're working on a new venture called Credo. Let's go. Arnie Duncan, thank you for joining us on Pod Save the People. Thanks for the opportunity. It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. I, we haven't seen each other since Ferguson. That was a memorable, memorable time. Yeah. In the church yeah. right there in inside Ferguson. Yeah. Now, you and you were Secretary of Education for how long? For seven years. First seven years of the administration. Came back home here to Chicago the last year. So I've been home about 18 months now. And are you from, from Chicago? I'm from Chicago. This is home all my life. <laughs> now, what is it like? This is what I, um, what is it like to, to now be a private citizen again, and you spent so long with an administration that people uh, hold in high regards. Uh, you always had somebody with you. you. You were always in education work for every day for seven years. What's it like now to be a private citizen? Um, I think I've been so blessed, so fortunate. I loved every minute of being in D.C. I would do it again in a heartbeat. The mm-hmm. good times, the bad times. I, you know, if knowing everything I know now, if you know, I had a chance, I'd you know do it again tomorrow. But I'm also extraordinarily happy to be back home in Chicago, particularly now. It's it's liberating. Um, I'm from here. I'm from the streets here to get back around real people and do the stuff that, you know, able to do the stuff I'm doing now, which we'll get into. Um, I can't tell you how much it means to me personally. And this is sort of a strange thing to say, but um, I felt like my soul needed it, needed mm-hmm. to get back around real people. And it, I, I needed it more than I realized. So love DC, love the work, love the team, but very, very happy to be home now. I'm interested about your your experience at scale, like what it's like to lead one of the biggest school systems in the country and then go to lead the Department of Education. Um, what did you what did you learn in those roles that you hadn't anticipated? Or like what was what was the, the surprising part of it? Well, you had you had surprises both great surprises and frankly heartbreaking surprises every day. Like you never stop learning. And I went in, you know, with a sense of what we wanted to do and were really pleased to be able to see, you know, graduation rates go to all-time highs and many more students taking and passing AP classes. We always had budget challenges, worked through that, labor management issues, you know, negotiating with, with uh, the labor union, and we were able to keep labor peace and really respect teachers and work hard there. So there were, you know, fiscal challenges always, labor challenges always, academic achievement while we're getting better was never fast enough. You always want to get better faster, um, but felt we were making progress and sort of a segue a little bit to, you know, the work that, you know, Curtis and I and our team are doing now. I always tell people by far the hardest part of my job 
was going to the funerals of, of our kids in Chicago public schools who were killed uh, due to gun violence here. And it's you know sort of a staggering statistic that's hard for folks to truly comprehend. But during my seven and a half years as CEO of the Chicago public schools, on average, we lost a child every two weeks due to gun violence. It was just a staggering rate of loss. And going to those funerals, going to those kids' homes, going to classrooms with an empty desk and trying to make sense of the you know, what's of the senseless, um, nothing came close to being that hard. And frankly, it got harder and harder over time. And I'm still close to many of these, the families of kids now that, you know, were killed 10 years ago, which is sort of crazy to, you know, Starkeisha Reed was this, you know, amazing girl who was in her living room at 7.30 in the morning getting ready for school and was shot by an AK-47 from, you know, 100 yards away. Her mother, Denise Reed, you know, talk to all the time. Um, Blair Holt was on the you know, school bus going home, on the CTA going home after school at 2.30, and a guy jumps on the bus with a gun, and he jumped in front of two girls and was killed. And his mother works for the fire department. His, you know, his father works for the police department. And um, it, that, stuff, uh, that stuff scars you. And um, it's not fair. It's not right. And in hindsight, very, very naively, when my family and I left to go to D.C. in 2000, actually 2009, I thought it couldn't get worse. I mm-hmm. thought we were at rock bottom. And the truth was in the seven years we were gone, it got a lot worse. And coming back, that's why we're doing what we're, you know, trying to do what we're doing now. So what is the work that you're doing now? Why is it important? Um, we, are, we are trying to make Chicago a safer city and trying to dramatically reduce the number of shootings and homicides here in the city. Um, we have robbed kids of their childhoods here. There's so many kids who literally can't go outside anymore out of fear. And we're trying to work with the young men, largely 17 to 24-year-old African-American men, although not exclusively, who are most at risk of shooting or being shot and helping them transition from the illegal economy to the legal economy. We are hiring them. We're giving them jobs. We're giving them job skills. We're giving them social-emotional support and wraparound services. We're helping them try and work through the trauma. This is not post-traumatic. This is present traumatic stress disorder. They're living with a level of trauma every single day that's hard for folks on the outside to to comprehend. Every guy has a life coach who's working with them and helping them transition from the world of the streets and the illegal economy to the legal economy into stable employment at the back end. Um, we try and keep guys with us for six months, nine months, 12 months until they're ready to transition to uh, jobs in the mainstreaming economy. And this is a cohort-based program. It is largely a cohort-based program, although we want to get better at working with, there's some individual guys where it's not safe for them to be in a cohort, not safe for other folks, and we're get, trying to get smarter at that. But it's largely trying to build a brotherhood and a camaraderie. How big is a cohort? 20 to 30, generally. And it's been interesting. In almost every cohort, um, we didn't plan it, but just the way the violence is here in Chicago, we have started with guys who were actually shooting at each other not long ago. And working through those issues and really helping people get past the clicks, get past whatever. It's uh, it's deep work, um, but it's unbelievably inspiring to see guys build a brotherhood who were literally not long ago trying to check, take each other's lives, quite frankly. And Curtis, what, what's the work that you do and why is this important to you? Oh, well, um, it's very important to me because I believe I heard you say a few times that Right now, we're in, in such such chaos that there's no middle ground, right? You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. 
Um, so for so long, I was part of the problem, right? So I thought that I owed it to not only my community, but to myself and others that believed in me more than I believed in myself at that time to try to be a positive influence and a role model to make positive change. Um, what does it mean when you say you were part of the problem? Um, I was a former leader of one of the street gangs here in Chicago. Not the, let's not get it twisted, but a former leader of one of the uh, street gangs here in Chicago. And what is it? So for people that don't, you know, in the... In the public, we hear about, or people hear about gangs, right? And you, you say street gang. How would you define a gang? If somebody was like, what is a gang? What would you say? Well, there's a lot of different definitions, right? And I tell people this all the time, right? When you think about the 4-H club, right? Or you think about the Boy Scouts, right? If you use the traditional meaning of a gang, right? They would fit right into that. Uh, but it's the, it's this real misnomer, misnomer right, that, people that are all part of these street organizations are bad people, right? And I, and I tend to differ with that, right? Because sometimes people are indirectly involved, right? Because of where they live. And I tell people all the time that a lot of these people uh, become involved just because of their zip code, right? So if you live in a certain part of Inglewood, then automatically you're determined to be a part of this clique, which could be true or untrue. But by definition, you're a part of that because of where you because of where you're living. You know, I'm from Baltimore, a city that has experienced uh, historic levels of violence most recently uh, this year, but also in the recent past. And I say that because we've tried every type of program or solution that we could think of, and it, it hasn't produced the results that we would like. So my question to you is, what is different about this approach that you're trying, given that so much has been tried in this city already? So to me, what's what's really different is I work for a couple other um, programs. Ceasefire, which is now Cure Violence, you're probably familiar with. I've also I also ran a program for Father Baltimore. Ceasefire right, is in Baltimore, right? For Father for Father Michael Flager as well. And what's most intriguing about this, and it's one of the reasons why I came on board, is because it had a component, and the component was resources, which a lot of these uh, programs really don't have, and we were actually. Uh, going to give these young men an opportunity to get some money, right? To say the least. Like a lot of the other programs, you know, we come in on the front end and we try to stop violence, but we have nothing to offer these young men on the back end, right? And I believe that the income is just a fishnet to bring them in, right? Because we know that if we just give them money, then they might be a shooter that's making with a check, right? But we have to change their mindset and also the behavior. And that's another thing that's really different. We're doing a lot of cognitive behavior training and therapy with these young men. We're doing a lot of substance abuse with these young men and other wraparound services, which I believe is greatly needed to improve them mentally and socially. I'm going to be very, very clear that we don't have all the answers here. Um, we're making mistakes every single day and learning hard lesson, lessons. And this work is nothing if not humbling. <laughs> and what I will say to echo Curtis, though, is I think you have to come at this from a couple of different ways. First of all, and this is not a knock on the police. I've said this to the police. I don't think the police can solve this problem. And as you know, you know, trust between the community and the police here in Chicago is at a, I don't say an all-time low, but is, is uh, we have a long, long way to go. And I don't think we can lock our way out of this. I think mass incarceration has had a devastating impact, particularly on black families in, in places like Chicago. And giving these guys a chance that they have never had in their life to do something positive. The two pieces that Kurt talked about, you need them both. 
Um, I'm not trying to solve a crime problem. I'm trying to solve an economic problem. Um, these are not boys. These are men. They have to eat. They have to pay rent. Many have kids. And they're going to do that one way or another. Just as I'm a father, Kurt's a father, we're going to take care of our kids. We're lucky enough to be able to do it you know, in the mainstream economy. But if you're not lucky enough to do that, you're going to find a way to take care of your family. So we're giving them a way to do that. And you're coupling it, with, as Kurt said, with you know, cognitive behavior therapy, with substance abuse counseling, with mentors. It's not straight transformation. It doesn't happen overnight. We have good days and bad ga- days and guys struggle and you know, progress can be precarious. But overall, it's, um, it's pretty powerful. And then for us, the, the question now is, can we scale? Like, I know we're keeping guys alive now. I know that for a fact. I know guys who used to be shooting aren't shooting now. What we're not doing yet is bringing down Chicago's numbers. So our goal over the next you know, two, three years is to start to scale what we're doing and see can we bring down uh, Chicago's homicide rate and, and uh, shooting rate. And I'm interested for both of you, and Curtis, you went from being a street organization to now working with the former Secretary of Education. You went from being the former Secretary of Education Secretary of Education to now working with people who are formerly in street organizations. What have you learned about sort of each other's perspective or like the approach? You know, Curtis, the you are now close to the not only the policy world, but like the guy who set the policy for so long. And Arnie, you're close to a side of the world that you were impacting at like sort of the macro, macro, macro level. And now you're like at the hyper micro. So Curtis, we'll start with you. I'd love to know like what is how how has how has this experience changed the way you think about sort of the world or this work or anything? Well, you know, first of all, when I first met Arnie, he was a politician, and you know, we had a bad taste in our mouths <laughs> about politicians, right? Because you know, some, I wasn't a politician; I was doing policy. But keep going, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> never, You're a politician no, to the people. Never run anything. But keep going, keep going. Right, right. but uh, and, and when he when he first came in, he was like, "Get a group of guys. We want to talk about uh, how can we make some positive change and impact the communities." You know, I was like, I've heard that before. (laughs) And and so, but for me, uh, I always was of the mindset to, you have to give a person the opportunity before you can really make judgment on them, right? So we sat down, we had this big grandiose conversation, then he left, (laughs) right? And a couple years later, he appeared. It was like, I'm ready to do something. So I was ready to do something. Like, you know, what is that all about? And, you know, for one, again, he was a policymaker. And for two, he was a Caucasian. So let's put that out there as well. So I was kind of reserved about it. But I had did some work with Father Mike, who's probably one of the blackest white men that I know. Uh, um, but again, you know, uh, it, it's always in the back of your head and in, in the back of your mind that it's, it's, it's sometimes a white face, which becomes the forefront of black issues, right? So that's something that I had reserved in my mind, right? But I never was of this mindset to really judge anyone just by the color of their skin, but by their intentions, right? So he came and we talked and we had some discussions. And what was really intriguing about it, I think I said it earlier, is that he said that we're going to provide these young men with resources. And so that was the powwow for me. Like, really, we, we have somebody to really give these guys to make a difference. And that's what happened. And so we've been working really, really closely. And now I call him my brother, my friend. You know what I mean? Because I believe that he's really a man of his word. We've all had some rough upbringings. We did some things uh, that we're not proud of. But again, we're, we're learning this this together because this is not a one-shoot-fits-all problem, right? We have to come at it from di- many different angles. And I think that together, along with other people that's doing tremendous work here in Chicago, I think that we can really impact this violence that's going on. 
the only way we're going to solve this is you need a, a mix of different skills. You need a mix of different interests. So we have guys from the corporate community. We have guys, you know, who, who come out of the streets and they're all equally important and come at it from a different way. We can't keep doing the same things here. The results we're getting, you know, you can't just keep trying the same thing and continue to fail. And so um, there are so many, Kurt is an extraordinary person and he gave you a, a little bit of his story. His story is so much more deeper and profound than, than you know, you may ever know. But what I know from my life is there are thousands of Kurtz around the city, guys who are extraordinarily smart, who have huge hearts, who are charismatic, who are natural leaders, who want to make a difference. And we are not going to get there. We're not going to solve these issues. We're not going to get to a better place without their leadership and their creativity and their ideas. And is it Kurt or Curtis? Whichever one. <laughs> like, I keep saying Curtis. He keeps saying Curtis. Yeah, right, 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 um, right. How did we, how do we, how do we get here? Like it is a problem in a city like this that has been so bad for so long. And I say that again, coming from a city where it has been so bad, so bad for so long. For so long. Yep. Um, yeah. But how, what's your diagnosis of like, not only how do we get here, but like, how are we like stuck here? It seems. Um, that's a really, really good question. You and I think about it every day, all the time. Um, but you being from, ba- from Baltimore, you know as well that, and not just in Baltimore, Chicago, but even third world countries, right? Wherever there's poverty, there's high rates of crime. I don't care where it is, right? And so then you also ask the question on how did Chicago become the poster child for violence, right? And then you also think about that. Uh, if we don't have the worst educational system, we have one of the worst, right? If we don't have the highest rate of unemployment, we have one of the highest rates of unemployment. And we also have the highest rate of men, 16 to 25, that's not working. So you put that on top of all of the ills and things that's going on, right? And I know it's cliche, but again, you put all of that on top of people that's hurt. So hurt people hurt people, right? And that's what we have. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Now, Arnie, so Curtis, you talk about the school system being bad for people. Arnie, you led it for a long time and then led, led at the federal level. Were you not able to, was it was the system just bigger than any one person could move? Or like, how, how has that continued to be a sore spot for people in the city? I think that, you know, the progress, whether it's in Chicago or at the federal level, and you know this better than anyone, or the progress is real. We have so far to go. And, you know, just taking the federal level, we were so proud to have, you know, high school graduation rates go to all-time highs of 84%. You know, love that. But 
that's still almost 750,000 kids each year dropping out of school and no chance. And the number that hit me coming home here to Chicago, DeRay, that, that Kurt said this is staggering, but they did a study of sort of 16 to 24-year-old young black men in Chicago. And basically half, half our young black men are neither in school or working. Wow. And Chicago's a third, Chicago's basically a third white, third black, third Latino. So when you have half of young men totally on the outside looking in, totally feeling like that world isn't there for them, what chance do they have? What chance do they have? And so, the, you know, the structural issues here, not to, you know, not to get too deep in the policy side, but you know, Illinois has one of the worst funding formulas for, for education. And we sued the state when I was here in Moss. But the fact that it matters if you're born five or six miles north of us here, when that girl met, you get twice as much money spending your education every single year than a child is born in, you know, on the south side or west side in Austin or in Englewood or in Harvey, you know, for that matter. So you have these structural inequities that the kids who need the most get the least and the kids who need the, the you know, need the least get the most. That's why, you, you know, that's why you've done what you've done and why I've tried to do what I do. So the education piece is a huge piece that we have to keep getting better at. People separate like drug dealing from like what they consider to be like violent sort of like, you know, I think about with us in, in the protest community, it was like looting turned out to be like the most the most heinous thing that could ever happen in the street, right? And then for some people, it's like gang becomes like kill people. And when they think about rehabilitation, that that actually doesn't seem like a a possibility that so many people think about like incarceration as like the way to deal with that. What is your, what do you say to those people? Well, I definitely say that incarceration is not, is not the way that we, it's not our road to redemption, right? Because if you don't change the mindset, then guess what? The little, bro- the bigger brother that you remove from the home, if the younger brother's mindset and mentality is not different, then he'll take on that same mentality that the older brother has taken on. And we have the largest incarceration than any other country, and we're still probably the most violent, right? So that shows you that that's, that, that, that's not the answer. Um, but again, it's, it's conditions, right? And I believe that if you change the conditions that a person is in, then his mindset will, will, will change, right? That I was a really, really violent person, right? I grew up violent. That's all I knew was violence. But once I was taken out of those conditions and got some help that I needed and was able to talk about it, and some people actually gave me a chance to do something different, which we believe that about 90% of the guys out there or even a little more want to do something different if provided with those opportunities. I'll tell you one deep story that's just real, real time with us. Um, last Friday, we were on a, a, a peace march, Kurt and I, with Father Flager, who was uh, just an amazing man and mentor. And Kurt introduced me to a guy who um, I've hated all my life. Um, I had never met him, but uh, when I was a teenager, he killed um, a guy I was close to. And has to be well known, a guy named um, Benji Wilson, who was the number one basketball player, not in Chicago, but in the in, uh, in the United States. I, I, just, I was just somewhere where somebody was talking about him like, and the other day. So on this peach march with us was the guy who killed Ben Wilson. And he is- You now, knew him? Um, I had never met him. You knew Benji? I knew, we grew up playing together. And um, I remember where I was in college when I got the call that he'd been killed. I remember exactly where I was standing. I was a sophomore. He was, he was two years younger than me. And- um, so this is a man I've literally hated all my life and walked with him, 
heard his story, talked, and that was last Friday. This Friday, two days ago, I brought him out to talk to our guys. And he's actually now working with us and with one of the new cohorts and is turning guys' lives around. And for me to, again, to try and understand Mm -hmm. and not just understand, appreciate his power for doing good now, just like Kurt's. Um, I can't, I'm getting chills now thinking about it. And um, so we can throw people away forever. We can condemn them forever. But he's able to reach guys and say things that I can't begin to. Kurt's able to reach guys and say things that I can't begin to. We need them. We have to have them to win this fight. What's the education component of this? I ask only because I know that it seems like Baltimore adult literacy is a huge, we have a lot of people who are, who are so low skilled and that it's hard for them to make different choices. So we have, you know, many of our guys are obviously not surprisingly high school dropouts. We have an amazing guy who's leading our education, you know, sort of curriculum. We have a bunch of guys who are getting um, not just their GEDs, but high school diplomas and working very, very hard. We have guys thinking about, you know, community college is the next step. And so we want at the end of the day, you know, every guy who wants to, to get their minimum, their high school diploma. And that obviously opens up a set of job opportunities that don't exist otherwise. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's important. And Kurt always brings us back to this. Obviously, I'm the, you know, always going to be the biggest champion for more, more education. But our goal here to be very clear is violence reduction. And so for me, the education strategy is a means to an end. <laughs> it's not the end itself. If, you know, the substance abuse, all the wraparound services. Now, what can people do as we wrap up? Curtis, what can, what can like citizens do to help? with violence reduction. Is there anything citizens can do? Yeah, for one is not be afraid, right? Because I went and spoke at Northwestern, right? And it was a, it was astonishing, astonishing to me how many people raised their hand and just really, really wanted to help, right? And I was like, wow, I was blown away because, you know, when you're from sometimes from the inside looking out, you don't believe that people really care about it, right? So everybody raised their hand and I've been keeping in contact with them. So again, not to be afraid, uh, to to reach out. We march all the time. We just can't, you know, how people say that, you know, we're not going to march. What does that do? I mean, at least it shows that people do care, mm-hmm. right? And if we don't show that we care, then who's going to care about us? Um, and just to be a part of it. Again, I believe that there's no middle ground to this. You're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Now, before we talk about how, where people can go to get more information, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is your analysis of this current Department of Education? Uh, changing, changing subjects here. Um, I I wish I was just worried about bad education policy and there's a lot of bad education policy coming out of there. Um, I'm much more worried about war. (laughs) Um, I don't have the luxury of just thinking about education policy. I think where this president is headed is very scary and people are like, Oh, you know, everything changed with Charlottesville (laughs) from, we have known his character. We have known his values for a long, long time. And if people are finally waking up, that's great. They're waking up, but it didn't take Charlottesville. Wasn't out of character. It was exactly in character. Um, there's nothing new there that we hadn't seen repeatedly, not one time repeatedly, not for months, for years. And so we don't, the truth is we don't know how this movie ends. I think I'm normally pretty good at sort of knowing where things are going to end up and it's sort of hard or where you want to end up. You have to figure out how to get there and that's hard. We don't know how this movie ends. And I worry a lot about war. I worry a lot about 
you know, many people getting hurt before this chapter is done. And obviously we know people are getting hurt now. Immigrants are getting hurt now. Dreamers are getting hurt now. Um, so we have to continue to not just an education policy, but on across the board challenge and resist and find ways to come to, you know, bring people together in a, in a really tough time. But this is a scary time for our, our country and for our democracy and candidly for, the, for our, our world. And um, when you have a leader who is so unstable, who is so focused on self, people say, well, you know, he, you know, he'll hurt the country to protect himself. Of course he'll do that. That's what he's done all his life is right. build his own brain. And like that, you know, you're surprised now that you're just getting that realization. When has he ever been about anything more than himself? Ne- never, never. Um, so... To try and answer your question directly, I am concerned about education policy. I'm concerned about the lack of enforcement on civil rights. I'm concerned about the, you know, lack of focus on the the rights of, you know, LGBT, uh, you know, kids. I'm concerned about the, you know, the focus being simply on vouchers and not around, you know, whether it's early childhood education or high school, you know, completion rates or, you know, college, you know, it's just like an ideological drive. But it's a minority of my worry is spent on education policy and I'm much worried about bigger picture thing and, Four years of this feels unsustainable, but he may survive four years. He could be, you know, he could be reelected. So and loud. it's, um, it's, uh, I, you know, I've, my kids are 13 and 15 where, you know, I, on one hand, I hate that they're going through this and seeing because they're smart enough to really understand. And we talk about it almost every night, but this, this has changed, you know, they're going to be aware <laughs> and they're going to be present, I think for the rest of their lives. And that's a good thing. I just hope something really, really catastrophic doesn't happen um, and I can't promise that it, that it won't. I don't think anybody can promise that. I think you're right. Now, where can people go to learn more about the work that you all are doing? Yeah, so Emerson Collective is, is our fantastic partner, and you can you know, look up information there. Our program is called Chicago Cred, C-R-E-D, um, Creating Real Economic Destiny. Arnie, this is not a problem that is unique to Chicago, that there are cities across the country trying to deal with what seems like intractable violence. If they are listening today and they're looking for like maybe your earliest best practices, what would you tell them? So you, you hit the nail on the head. And again, coming from Baltimore, you've lived this in ways that are not dissimilar at all to us here in Chicago, that it is uniquely acute here in Chicago, but it is not unique to Chicago. This is a national challenge. And I think trying to come at it a couple of different ways, and we talked about it earlier one is we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to continue to work on the prevention side, which is great education and great mentoring and great after-school programming and try and prevent guys from coming down this path. But you can't just work on the prevention side. You got to work on the intervention in the crisis space with older guys if you want to mitigate that. What's the best way to try and reach them? Again, not that we're doing this perfectly by any stretch, but a couple pieces of what we're trying to do in a comprehensive manner um, the comprehensive strategy is you have to give them jobs. You have to employ them. You can't just preach. You can't tell them what to do. You have to give them a chance to make some money. Secondly, you have to provide the wraparound services. And again, the level of trauma, the level of fear our guys are living with, the stories they tell about what they have to do to get home every day from our program and navigate, drive around the block three, four, five times before they feel safe to get out of their car to walk in their home, stuff that's you know, unimaginable. That's not post-traumatic. That's, that's present. So the wraparound services. Third, the life coaching, I think, is so important. Having a, a person who's going to be there for the long haul, not for six months, not for a year, but for, for the long haul. 
And then four, again, building a, a camaraderie, a brotherhood, having guys who were, who were rivals, who were enemies, you know, whereas now it's ops, who were ops previously, coming together, support each other. Not one of those things by themselves, but the combination of that we think is really powerful. And then finally, you just, you can't give up on guys. And you, again, you have to walk with them for the long haul. And this is not, you know, a two-month program and then the guy's cured and moves on. And Kurt talked about an addiction and th- this takes time. And what's a piece of advice that's, that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I've gotten so much good advice, but one that really sticks with me and it, and it keeps me going is that you have to be the change that you want to see, right? Because it, it's hard, right? coming from the streets and really wanting to change because unfortunately, like a lot of people that you hang out with or used to associate with, they're not ready for that change that, to happen, right? So sometimes you get stereotyped as being soft, as you're not, a, you're not about it anymore, right? But that piece of advice always comes to my mind that you have to be the change that you want to see. Thank you both for coming. I appreciate you and Pod Save the People and we consider you a friend of the pod. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Thanks. for the opportunity. Yep. Thanks for all your leadership. Well, That's it. Thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People this week. Make sure that you tell a friend and I can't wait to see you back here next week. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m. at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.